Please be seated. We have two hearings this morning. Um, hearings on proposed amendments to the Minnesota Rules of Professional Conduct and a hearing on proposed amendments to the General Rules of Practice. We'll take the Professional Conduct Rules first. And in looking at the roster, um, it looks like Paul Godfrey and Ken Jorgensen are going first. Good morning, Mr. Good morning. President. Nice to see you. Is this you. my cue? This is it. May it please the court. Uh, my name is Paul Godfrey. I'm here as president of the State Bar Association. Uh, my main role here is just to thank you for inviting us to participate. Uh, I think all of you know one of the things we're doing around the state is one profession. We're going around the state putting on conferences. I appreciate the court uh, attending those conferences, and I view this event today as just another example of where lawyers and judges are working to make our profession better. And with that, I'll turn it over to Ken Jorgensen. Thank you. Mr. Jorgensen. They didn't have this the last time I was here. May it please the court, um, I'm Ken Jorgensen. I'm a member of the State Bar Rules of Professional Conduct Committee and I'm here this morning on behalf of the State Bar as the petitioner. Um, I intend to be brief. I think the State Bar's petition is very clear and comprehensive in demonstrating why the court should adopt both the proposed amendments to Rule 1.6 on client confidentiality. I will speak only to that issue. Mr. Cooperstein will cover the Rule 5.5 proposed amendment. Um, as the court is aware, there is a small but substantial, if I can say that, um, disagreement between the board and the director and the MSBA with regard to the proposed amendment to Rule 1.6. Um, I'd like to point out that the disagreed provision, which is what rule, proposed Rule 1.6b8, has been drawn very, very narrowly. It is not an assault on confidentiality it is going to lim uh, provide the ability to disclose confidential information in very few circumstances, but we think those circumstances are very important. Um, the, and, and to give you an example, or not to give you an example, but take you through this, specifically to show you how narrow this is, before a lawyer would be permitted to disclose confidential information, there are what I call the hurdles or hooks that a lawyer has to get through or get by before the exception is triggered or it applies. It has to be specific information, not the general grousing or opinion. Jorgensen's a lousy lawyer. Jorgensen lost my case. Those are not going to trigger the exception. The disclosure of the confidential information by the client has to be serious. It has to raise a substantial question about the lawyer's honesty, trustworthiness, or other fitness. It has to be publicly disclosed to others. And it has to disclose confidential information from the relationship. Those are four hooks or hurdles that have to apply before the exception is even applicable at all. Even then, assuming you can get over those four hurdles, the lawyer still has to be careful about what he or she discloses because there is, as there is in all of the exceptions, the limitation that you can only disclose that which is necessary, in this instance, to rebut the accusation. So I would say that there are then four hurdles and a limitation that are imposed on that. I think it's also um, important to kind of point out the current situation as it is right now. Lawyers can, if somebody publicly defames them, 
with confidential information or without confidential information, but with confidential information is what is important here. They have the ability to disclose confidential client information by bringing an action under the law for defamation per se. You plead your case out, you plead what the real facts are, there's no limitation. We go back to the proceedings, which the uh, board and director agree, well, I now have a proceeding. Um, since opinion uh, 24 was issued, I've actually advised some lawyers, this is your ability, this is probably your only remedy in order to rebut this if the client won't retract the allegations, the public accusations, without being subject to the pain of discipline. Uh, unfortunately, defamation per se is not the panacea. It appears to be, um, at least the lawyers that I've dealt with, don't want to bring lawsuits. The client might have some impairment. They might be um, indigent. But more and um, the last lawyer that I talked to said, the last thing I want to do is burden the courts with a lawsuit about what some clients said to me about on social media. It's just not something I want to do. Um, and so even though the lawyers have the ability to do so, the defamation per se uh, lawsuit is really not um, uh, a remedy. Counsel, in the uh, proposed amendment, it says the lawyer may respond to a client's specific and public accusation. What is the definition of public? Let's say, for example, a, a client is talking at a meeting of general counsel from various corporations and says, you know, Attorney Lillehaug uh, was just terrible. He wouldn't follow any of my uh, instructions, and here, here are a couple of examples. So is a meeting of multiple potential clients public, or does it have to be on the Internet? No, I, I think it would be pu public. We're not limiting this to social media, and I think the petition is clear on that. If it is disclosed publicly, whether that is to a newspaper reporter, if it's done at a public meeting, if it's done at a, uh, a social meeting or a trade meeting or anything of that, that would be a public disclosure and would trigger the ability of the lawyer to then respond and correct the record. And is there any obligation on the lawyer to tailor his or her response to the audience that received the... Um, the accusation. In other words, could I, could I then um, put on the internet, client made this accusation and here are the, the following reasons disclosing confidential information why it's completely incorrect. Does, I would say does that the response that would, need to be tailored to the... Uh, my the, answer to that would be on the interpretation of the rule, even as it's currently written, that answer to that would be no because it's not necessary to rebut the accusation. In other words, if the accusation was to the corporate counsel group, it's not necessary for me to post that on the Internet to people who did not hear or were not privy to the public accusation. So, again, you've got to tailor that rebuttal to that which is necessary to correct the record or fix the record. Um, there are several interests that we, the, the, the bar State Bar believes the rule change would serve. There's the public interest in the clients or potential clients getting accurate information for their attorney choice. But I think it applies to other situations as well. Lawyers run for public office. They're vetted for appointed positions. And as we've seen in recent events, accuracy of information is very cru crucial to those situations. Um, public confidence in the profession is always something that uh, truth is an important public interest to serve. Uh, lawyers have an interest in their reputation and also in getting clarity about the confidentiality rule and how it applies to these public accusations uh, uh, that are false about them. But I think the other, the big issue right now that you kind of, a lot of people have focused on is the fairness issue. In our law of privilege and waiver, which by the way is referenced in a number of the other state bar opinions uh, which are relied upon by the board and the director's office, the law recognizes it's unfair for the privilege holder to use the privilege as a sword and then also as a shield. 
And this should apply as well to the public attacks on a lawyer. The irony of this situation is if in litigation a client unintentionally discloses something that's privileged, the adversary can come and compel the lawyer to disclose not only that information, but in the case of subject matter uh, waiver, lots of information that the client did not disclose. Now we're facing a situation in which the client has intentionally disclosed information, and we're saying the lawyer should not be able to respond. The um, disagreement, as I said, is somewhat narrow. We agree with the uh, board and the and I think that's an issue, but of course the difference is, in this case, it's the client's lawyer as opposed to an adversary proceeding. I agree. I agree. There is, there is a distinction there. The, Council, um, if I may, do you have any sense or can you give me a sense of the, the magnitude of the problem? I guess I'm not necessarily sensing that there's a great need for this change, but Maybe I'm wrong about that, or, or how am I supposed to measure that? Um, that, that is, that's a good question and a difficult one to answer because I, I'm not really sure. What has triggered this, though, is the issuance of Opinion 24 that says no matter what the situation is, lawyers are prohibited from responding, which has then got us to the rule change to say there should be certain circumstances and incidents in which lawyers have been publicly defamed and it's important, the interests are important enough that the lawyer should be able to rebut that accusation without having to commence a defamation per se lawsuit. And again, one of the reasons we have drafted this exception extremely narrow. Um, I'd like to point out that if you look at the state bar opinions from other states that the director's office has relied upon um, and the board has relied upon, Three of those opinions, the first three opinions, all carve out the situation. They say, this doesn't address when the client has disclosed confidential information. And the other two opinions, Texas and Philadelphia, piggyback on those opinions. So by implication, those state buyers are saying, we're not saying you can't respond when the client has, act has affirmatively disclosed confidential information. And then, of course, the DC rule, which is cited, um, obviously allows lawyers to do this. We've had a long history um, in Minnesota of having more exceptions to confidentiality than other states. And the reason for that is the sky hasn't fallen. It's been 20, 30 years now that that's happened. Um, and the point that um, I would like to make as I sum up is, is that these narrow exceptions do two things. They provide greater specificity as to when both the lawyers can and also cannot. Because if there's a lot of exceptions and none apply, then you know you don't have the ability to disclose. Thank you for your time and your attention. Thank you very much. Um, Chief, could I ask uh, Mr. Jorgensen one other question, please? Yeah. I, I realize I'm pulling you over your time. Um, please place this in a national context. To what degree would Minnesota be breaking new ground um, that other states have not broken by adopting this proposed amendment? Uh, the DC rule is you, uh, that is cited in the petition is the first one I know that has kind of affirmatively come out and said, and it's much broader, it doesn't get into, it's not nearly as narrowly drafted as our rule is. I think a number of the other states have tried to do this through bar opinions. Los Angeles did this in 2012. I don't remember the dates on San Francisco and Philadelphia, but they have tended not to address this in a rule, but rather bar opinions interpreting the rule. Arizona has opinion as well. So we'd be behind DC, but ahead of 
almost everyone else in well, terms of adapting a rule? Uh, uh, yes, ahead on the rule, probably not in addressing the issue. And, and some of this has a div uh, difference to do with how some states regard bar opinions versus rules and that type of thing. It's a little bit of an apples and oranges when you get into kind of what I would call precedent or authority, but the, the short answer to your question is yes, we'd be the second state. Thank you, Council. Mr. Cooperstein. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Eric Cooperstein. I am appearing today as a member and on behalf of the MSBA. I am also a member of the MSBA's Rules of Professional Conduct Committee, and it's my job to talk to you about the three amendments that we are proposing to Rule 5.5, Rules of Professional Conduct. Uh, these proposals were developed in the Rules of Professional Conduct Committee. Um, they were then vetted by the MSBA's Judiciary Committee before going to the Assembly. They were considered by the Assembly on two occasions. On the first occasion, Susan Humiston and I presented an hour-long seminar about multi-jurisdictional practice and about what the amendments would do. And then the Assembly voted on those amendments uh, at the next meeting of the Assembly. I believe that was last April. Um, I don't know that the... Uh, uh, vote was unanimous, but it was, it, was, it was all on a voice vote, and I do not recall any dissents on the vote. Uh, we have also received support for these amendments from the HCBA and from several large law firms. The three amendments have some common themes. The main thrust between the three amendments is that client trust should be valued over geographic boundaries. The client's right to choose their lawyer should trump um, whatever restrictions we have on geographic boundaries. The other theme is that the practical realities of how the practicing bar believes that good lawyers practice law um, should be a guiding light in how we amend and interpret Rule 5.5. Um, the, of the three amendments, two of the amendments respond to issues that were raised by the court's decision in panel file 39302. Um, the first directly addresses that case in that we are proposing that there be a new subsection to Rule 5.5 um, which could be informally called the Family and Friends Amendment to 5.5. The notion that we would take out from the coverage of 5.5A um, a work that is done for um, family, close personal, uh, people with whom a lawyer has a close personal or professional relationship. And counsel, does, does the word person mean a natural person? Or can I, you have a close uh, prior professional relationship with a corporation? Well, Your Honor, the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court has said that for certain purposes, corporations are people. That's why I will, I will confess we have, not, we have not dug down on that particular analysis. Um, we are interested in the, I suppose, personal relations. We're thinking of the human beings who okay. make the decisions to hire lawyers um, and what, what trust those human beings have in the lawyers that they are contacting. Um, we, it's an interesting point, Your Honor, because we, we bootstrapped this language out of Rule 7.3 on advertising. Um, and I don't know that that question has been raised um, as to whether or not it has to be a natural person that the lawyer is prohibited from soliciting as opposed to a corporation in Rule 7.3. 7 but we're, what we're focused on is the decision that the client makes to contact a lawyer from whom they want to seek legal advice. Um, and so the, that, that First Amendment addresses both the issue of can a lawyer provide legal advice to an adult child, to an in-law, to a parent in another state when they have a legal 
a legal problem, um, perhaps regardless of whether or not the lawyer is skilled in that particular area of the law. That is what that particular amendment um, would do. It would also address the problem that is raised by the idea that um, if all of a lawyer's practice in other states has to be viewed as temporary, what happens when a lawyer's client, a corporate client perhaps, or a personal business client, moves to another state and has continuing business that they want the lawyer to handle? Um, how long could the lawyer continue to represent that client out of state before the practice ceases to become temporary? Um, so the idea and, with this... And that issue, of course, is more than what was presented in the panel opinion that began all of this thing. It Am is, I, Your Honor. I mean, as I, under, as I recall, that particular opinion, of course, I was, I was in dissent on that, but as I recall, uh, that dealt with a family relationship. And I think I read where we're at now is that the director has given up the ghost on that issue, that, we're, that, that agrees that family members... Uh, we should amend to deal with that situation. Yes, I believe that. I believe that's correct. The director would expand the rule to allow lawyers to give advice to family members. We are proposing that it should be expanded to those within lawyer with whom the lawyer has a close personal or professional relationship. Okay, and can maybe address why we should do. So let's. I don't want to assume that we'll agree to extend it to family members, but I'm interested in the argument for extending it beyond from family to a somewhat larger group. The idea, Your Honor, is we're, we're looking at this law and we're trying to look at this, law, this, this, this rule in a way that makes sense to practicing lawyers, to allow lawyers to interpret it as best they can. We don't have a strict definition of what temporary means. Um, we do know that clients develop relationship with lawyers, and in other parts of the rules of professional conduct, client choice is a, is a, it's a paramount value, right? We, clients have the right to choose their lawyers. They have the right at any time to fire their lawyers. Um, so. Um, why is a rule that is about the, um, the practice of law, who can practice in which jurisdiction, governing when a client who moves to another state who trusts a lawyer um, can no longer represent that client? Why is, Mr. Why is the client's Mr. choice being impinged by the geographic boundaries? What, what do you say? What's your response, though, to uh, the board's um, uh, concern that the terms close personal and prior professional, those terms are are vague, they're ambiguous, um, and, and I think quite expansive is the, is the terminology they use. So, I mean, we kind of know, with, at least with family, you, that's much, obviously much easier to define. And so I suspect that's why they're agreeable to expanding the rule uh, to include family. But now you're into close personal uh, and prior professional relationships. So how concerned about that should we be? Um, I don't think the court should be concerned, Your Honor, because those terms have been in the rules for several decades, and they haven't presented, there hasn't been a problem in interpreting close personal or professional relationship in the two or three decades. I was looking at the rules yesterday, at least, as, um, at least since 1993, that, that, that phrase close, per, close personal and professional relationship has been in the rules, and it hasn't presented any problems in well, interpretation. That, of course, it, it's in the solicitation section, right? Yes. And as a result of Supreme Court decisions and so forth, I mean, I don't mean to, all the rules are important. I agree they're all important, but maybe solicitation hasn't had the attention to it that um, the practice rules have had. One would think, Your Honor, it would be the opposite, that we'd be more concerned about solicitation, about near-do-well lawyers going after clients um, who they should not be contacting in person, as opposed to clients who want to contact lawyers. In other words, clients who want the relationship. These are people that, the, that you know, this, these are uh, lawyers that the, that the client knows and clients that the lawyer knows. 
Um, so we're in, it would seem to me to be the opposite, that it's even safer in terms of multi-jurisdictional practice than it would be in the solicitation area. Council, and we haven't seen abuses there. Um, providing legal services in the state, is that does that include appearing as of right in the courts of the state? In other words, does it cover litigation? Um, it would, well, it would, it would cover litigation except for the fact that the rules of court require pro hoc vice admission in order to appear um, in any of the courts of the state. Yeah, but so this I, wouldn't trump any of those civil rules. We do not envision this to trump any of those civil rules. Well, I mean, as I, as I read it, it does kind of suggest you no longer have to go through the pro hoc vice. You're entitled to provide legal services in this jurisdiction. Under Rule 3.4c, Your Honor, anyone practicing in this jurisdiction would have to follow the rules of court. And okay. this does not make an exception. Okay. Um, all, all, all this would do is, is say that the lawyer will not be disciplined for the fact of attempting to practice in this jurisdiction if it was a close family or friend. Um, but 3.4c is fairly clear that the rules of court do have to be, you know, do have to be followed. Mr. Um, Cooperstein, would, would prior professional relationship, would that include a relationship other than an attorney-client relationship? It, your... it, 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 could, it, could, it could possibly, yes. Okay. Any concern? Again, should we be concerned about that? I, I immediately I thought of prior attorney-client relationships and nothing broader than that. But you're saying it could we, be it could be any kind of prior professional we, relationship. We're confident, Your Honor, in the director's ability to distinguish when someone truly has a prior professional relationship with someone and when someone is just trying to make it up. That is, that is, that is <laughs> okay. one of the things the director's office does best is try to figure out when people are just making something up or when there is a true substantive relationship. And I think that um, it would not be hard to establish criteria for what looks like a professional relationship and what looks like a casual or a passing relationship. Right. Kind of a follow-up to that, or to, if I may, to Justice Lillehog's question earlier, are where would we be if we adopted this in this broader scheme of things nationally? Where would this put us if we did that? Um, well, before panel file 39302, there were not very many interpretations of Rule 5.5C4. Um, so in some sense, we would be ahead on reinterpreting that portion of the rule. Um, but that, I don't know that it's a, a pioneering type of thing as much as it is um, clarifying a rule that already exists that the court has already commented on. Chief, can I ask? So, um, how are you envisioning the definition of family. And the reason that I ask this is because in some communities, for instance, the Native American community, the, the word family means something very different. So it's not a biological relationship. And has, have you given any thought to how that would be defined in that context? We have not, Your Honor, only because, again, we're bootstrapping this from Rule 7.3. And we're assuming that any definition that hasn't been a problem in Rule 7.3 and hasn't needed amendment for several decades is not a problem in enforcement. Um, and, 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 and again, there are other definitions within the rules. 1.8c has a definition of family. There are certainly many statutes that define, that define family, and the director's office could come up with reasonable interpretations of family should it become necessary. I see my time has expired. Thank, thank you for your time thank this you. morning. Thank you, Council. Uh, Ms. Wolpert, um, Chair of the Lawyers Professional Responsibility Board, you're going next? Yes.
Thank you, members of the court. Good morning. My name is Robin Wolpert. I'm chair of the Lawyers Professional Responsibility Board, and I'm here to speak on behalf of the board regarding the state bar's proposed amendments to 1.6B8 as well as Rule 5.5. We agree generally with the Minnesota State Bar Association that we don't want, in terms of general principles, we don't want the rules um, of professional conduct or the ethical practice of law um, to fall behind in terms of social or technological changes. And we also agree that you know, ethical practice of law should be workable in light of the way we actually practice. At the same time, however, the board's interests are broader than those of the state bar. So the state bar really represents um, the profession, and it represents in Minnesota the best of the profession, right? It is the best of the profession in terms of engagement and the practice of law. On the other hand, the board sees a wide variety, a wide bandwidth of practice. Um, that is the experience of the board in enforcing the rules. And the Lawyers Board also has a number of public members. So almost 40% of our board is made up of public members. And what happens there is that when us lawyers, you know, focus on the minutia and have arguments and discussions about what the rules mean, the public members pull us back. And they pull us back not only to common sense, but first principles regarding public safety and the public interest. So I wanted to emphasize that that's really the perspective of the board here, promoting trust and confidence in the legal profession, promoting trust and confidence in the disciplinary system. For any of us who have been involved in investigating ethics complaints, the first thing that you face with a complainant is the immediate distrust of the disciplinary system, believing that it's designed to protect lawyers. Okay. So, uh, what about rule? I mean, the, the the board opinion here, which prompted this, as I understand, it's number twenty-four. If I've got that right, um, and I think the MSBA's position is that it's simply too restrictive. Um, how do you respond to that? I mean, that's at the root of this entire discussion: mm -hmm. the view that it's just simply too restrictive. We disagree with the state bar's position that opinion twenty-four prohibits any response. In fact, lawyers are able to respond to criticisms in the public forum regarding their performance. You just can't use confidential information, okay? It's not like you're powerless. It's just that you can't divulge the, public, the confidential information. Why would you have that position? Not only because you want to maintain trust and confidence in the profession, but also because the last person you want talking about your case as your lawyer, and your lawyer really could be your worst enemy. Yeah, and I but can't counsel, let's say uh, somebody on um, a lawyer rating site says, you know, Attorney Lillehaug handled a case for me, and at four specific points, mm -hmm. he refused to follow my instructions. Now, under Opinion 24, can I at least respond, I, um, I followed the client's instructions in all relevant respects. No, I think the, under Opinion 24, but also under the rule, the board's position is that it's a moment for an elegant response that promotes trust and confidence in the profession. So give, give me Meaning, an elegant response. An elegant response would be, I respectfully agree, disagree with Justice Lillehaug's um, characterization of my services. I am, I am prohibited by the rules of professional conduct to respond. I invite Justice Lillehaug to communicate with me and talk to me in private 
regarding this matter. There are ways that you can do this that are elegant, that promote trust and so confidence. So by disagreeing, aren't you saying, no, I did do what the client told me to? I mean, the moment you say, I disagree, aren't you denying it? Well, you can also say, you know, taking another, you know, a step back, you can also say, I disagree with, you know, the characterization that has been made online about me. I invite Justice Little Hogg to speak with me offline. That way we can protect the attorney-client privilege. You know, there are ways to do this in a way that elevate the practice of law. All right? And I think that that's really the sense of the board here, is that there is a power imbalance between lawyers on the one hand and clients and the public on the other. And the board is keenly aware of that power imbalance and with respect to at least 1.6B8, the proposed amendments. All, all the power is in the hands of the client if the lawyer is not allowed to respond. Isn't that right? I mean, the, the no. privilege is the client's. The confidential information proviso is for the benefit of the client. Doesn't the client have the power? Um, the board would view um, clients and the public as disadvantaged with respect to the power of lawyers in terms of their skill, their advocacy, their knowledge. There is a specialization that goes with being a lawyer and a power that goes with it. And that's the position of the board is we want to make sure that we're protecting the public. So what I want to do is just tell you a little bit about each rule in terms of what was our process, how do we vet this, what our votes were, and what the main reasons were for either opposing or supporting um, various proposals from the state bar. So with respect to Rule 1.6B8, we, we have our own rules committee on the board, and the, the rule, ARC rules committee spent probably six hours worth of meetings just discussing and debating rule, the proposal to Rule 1.6. We had two separate board meetings where at least an hour or more of those board meetings were devoted to discussing and evaluating. Um, these issues. We had an MSBA member representative at our meetings to make presentations and answer questions. Our vote with respect to the State Bar's proposal with the new Rule 1.6b9, our board unanimously supported that change because it was a clarification of the law, it enhanced enforceability, and it made sense. With respect to um, Rule 1.6b8, that proposal from the State Bar, on a voice vote, it failed. And only three or four members of our board supported the State Bar's position. Now, why was that? One reason was we can't even tell in this era whether a post made about a lawyer, say a post made um, against Judge um, Justice Lillehag as a lawyer, we can't even tell who's making the post. We don't know if it's a client or not, right? So if someone says X lawyer is terrible and it purports to be the client, we don't know. So that was in one, one issue. The other one was... Well, counsel, that doesn't make much sense to me. The proposed rule by the MSBA says respond to a client's specific and public accusation. Mm -hmm. I mean, so you'd have to pin down that it was the client. Yeah, but how do you know? Well, then, People you, can't, say then things... you can't respond under the proposed amendment. Right. So one question the board had was, how would you even know? The second thing was, again, this whole issue of the last thing you want is your lawyer talking about your case and divulging confidential information. But the board also thought that the way it was written seemed to me to have at the absence of safeguards, which might mean that lawyers might 
go overboard in terms of responding and divulging confidential information. So the board thought we're in a new landscape here. It's new, we're in new territory. We don't see, getting to Justice Hudson's question, we don't see uh, a major problem here. And so let's monitor it. Let's be on top of it. But this isn't the appropriate change. There was not going to be clear direction and guidance from the way the proposal was written as to how lawyers should respond. So, to, so you didn't think those four hurdles and the limitation that we heard about this morning were, were sufficient? The board did not view those as, as significant hurdles. And the, and the way the board analyzed the issue was when someone tells a lawyer they haven't done a good job, you know, your lizard brain gets triggered, right? Fight or flight. Rationality is not necessarily going to be governing how you respond. And there is a risk to the client, to the public, the public perception of the profession, that you're readily willing to use confidential information to protect your reputation. And that was something the board did not support. Moving to Rule 5.5, some of the changes, as you can tell in our remarks, our written remarks, we support. So I just wanted to confine my remarks to, first of all, the so-called friends and family exception. Um, our board did support um, extending it to, um, f to family, but it wasn't you know, overwhelming support. And the board, I mean, it was a nine to four vote in our, in our board on the family issue. And I think the board recognized that family, getting to Justice McKegg's um, point, that family is somewhat ambiguous and hard to define, but it's easier to define than the other ones, such as close personal or prior professional relationship. The key thing that the board was interested in with these, with these amendments to 5.5E was, was, or the new proposed 5.5E was really this issue of competency and the handicap of a public member or family or someone with close personal relationship, recognizing the jurisdictional limits of the competency of a lawyer. Thank you, counsel. Your red light's on. Thank you. Uh, and next we have uh, Susan Humiston, the Director of the Office of Lawyers Professional Responsibility. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Susan Humiston and I am the Director of the Office of Lawyers Professional Responsibility. I will start with Rule 1.6. One of the things that I did not appreciate before Council, I have... we've had we've had, unfortunately, precious little discussion about 5.4C4. I will move Would to 5. Mind, point. Since nobody's touched on that, could you start there? Yes. So as it relates to 5.5C4, um, I think that the, the, um, the position of the director's office is that is an overbroad, um, that is a an exception that would swallow the rule. And I do concur with the um, uh, um, majority opinion in the Colorado decision when they said that. I do think that the, the current uh, exceptions are very broad, but they are not unlimited. And is I there, like- Is there anything that we, I, I, I think there is something that needs to be done with 5.5 C4 to provide some comfort. Um, to lawyers who read our unprofessional conduct decision and are very concerned. Is there any narrower language that, to your mind, would help solve the problem? 
Well, tell me a little bit about that concern. I think what I heard about the concern is that um, goes to the family. People think it is very unjust that you cannot help a family member. Uh, and that is uh, one of the things that really struck people. Well, I think the concern is much broader than the family was at issue in the unprofessional conduct case, but the idea that when a regular client in the state of Minnesota calls you and says, um, I've got a lien in Idaho, what should I do about it? Um, or uh, it, it relates to the fundamental interstate practice of law. I mean, is there anything we can do to provide some comfort to the bar that Minnesota is not a Neanderthal state? We, we want lawyers in our state advising clients on the laws of other states, and conversely, we want lawyers in other states advising clients on the law of Minnesota. And you can do that. The fact of the matter is you have to look at Idaho's law to determine whether or not you can advise them. That is the problem with the fact that we have a regulatory scheme that looks at the state in which you're going into to answer the question of what you can do there. As it relates to the practice of law in Minnesota, we have not seen the inability of lawyers outside of Minnesota to come into Minnesota and do what they need to do for Minnesota clients. I looked up the issue of discipline. So in the last five years, only five non-Minnesota lawyers have been disciplined for the unauthorized practice of law in Minnesota. Of those five, three already had offices here and were, had let their licenses in other states that they were using to practice here expire. I'm not sure a low number of lawyers being disciplined doesn't indicate there's a, there isn't a problem or at least a concern. It may be that a lot of this is going on and people just aren't caught on a day-to-day -day basis. But, they, but in light of our unprofessional conduct opinion, they're concerned that they, they may be subject to discipline. Is there anything we can do? Well, I think that the... Um, that is hard for me to answer because I do think that the 5.5C exceptions are broad enough to allow people to come in and do nine-tenths of what you want to do in the state and maybe not absolutely everything. And that is... And what's the tenth part that they can't do? The, the, the part is you can't come in if you have no connection to the state and it is not relating to... Um, it's not a current client. It's not, you have no connection to the state, it's not a current client, and it's not a uniform or other state practice where there's some issue of competency. That's what the comment says. It can arise out of or reasonably relate to your practice. So you can come into Minnesota and practice in Minnesota if it arises out of or is reasonably related to your current practice. So it's for a current client. You can come into Minnesota and do anything you want for your Texas client arguably. If you come into Minnesota, you can represent a client if it's on a uniform basis of law. And I think one thing that is very subtle but is powerful about Rule 5.5 that I'd like to point out to the court is one of the exceptions is the federal law exception. Right now, the way that is interpreted and the rule says, you can only practice federal law if you're authorized by statute in Minnesota. So that allows people who have um, USPTO, DHS, authorizing authority that allows not other lawyers to practice. It doesn't mean you can just do um, federal health care law. It does not mean you can just do antitrust law. 
But the exception that is proposed by the MSBA and which is supported by the director's office changes that language to say exclusively federal law. That is a broadening of the rule to encompass everything more, kind of a taking a step back from the comments, talking about a uniform nature. So it's a subtle, but it is an expansive definition of the other types of things. So you can, if you are a federal tax um, authority, come into the state of Minnesota and um, uh, practice with your, you know, your federal tax expertise being unlicensed in this state. I think that gives clients a broad opportunity uh, in, a, in a lot of areas to select their counsel. Um, as it relates to one to 5.5 as well, um, I did give up the ghost on family. I want to apologize for that because actually you're here in capacity. I mean, you're here as a representative of the board and so forth. So it's not, I didn't mean to personalize. It. Oh, no, that's, it's fine. I actually did, um, there were several reasons why that I'd like to share with the court that I did believe that that was okay um, because the board also voted for it, which, so that's good. Um, but there is no regulatory, except, you know, there's no regulatory reason to distinguish between family close personal or prior professional relationships, but I do think it goes to the heart of that Colorado decision that people felt was unfair. You can't help family members. I do see a lower regulatory risk there, and I do believe it does enhance access to justice for family members, so that I think it's okay for Minnesota residents to be able to call their non-Minnesota lawyer that's practicing in New York and ask for advice and have them interfere or have them get involved in their nursing care dispute. I don't think that is overall problematic. And so that's why I, I, I was able to convince, but there, be convinced to support that. But I don't think there's a regulatory um, difference between why, why we would do that. It's a practical reason. Um, the other thing that I'd like to point out is the prior professional relationship, as Justice Hudson indicated, is not tethered to attorney-client relationship. It is extremely broad. And one of the things I found interesting was when this court considered adoption of Rule 5.5, the model rule, there was one provision that the court did not accept, and that was the in-house counsel exception. The model rule has an exception for in-house counsel. This court did not exempt them from having to become licensed to practice in Minnesota because they believe, I, I assume, I wasn't the director in 2005 when that came up, that the court believes it's important. If you're going to have more than a temporary basis here, we want to license you. And so this uh, family, friends, it's, it's, I want to remind the court that it's untethered to temporary um, and it's untethered to practice of area. And with my last minutes, I'd like to focus briefly on Rule 1.6. I applaud the MSBA's efforts to draw, to attempt to draw narrowly a rule that is workable, but I don't think the guardrails are protective. The first reason I say that is because the definition of confidentiality is everything relating to the representation, as Justice Lillehog commented. And that means a client can very unwittingly disclose information about their representation by just saying anything 
about the representation. I do believe, to your hypothetical, the client can say, I did follow the advice because there is an exception in Rule 1.6b2 that allows clients to disclose information that the client has not told them to keep confidential, that the client has not is not protected by the attorney-client privilege, and that is not um, uh, unduly embarrassing or detrimental to the client. So in the hypothetical that Justice Littlehug gave, the general denial, I did not disclose information, and beyond that, we should have a discussion because of the rules, et cetera. That, that response would not, would not be viewed as a violation by the director's office. Correct. Um, the second reason why let me, I say it's so sure it's very- Let me make sure I understand that. So you, you can say, I deny that I did not follow the directions of the client. Correct. And that's not disclosing client information? No. I think I think that the, I say I disagree with or or more as as Robin would say more eloquently I disagree with that characterization of the representation I you know I think you can, can say can you say whenever the client gave me an instruction I followed it yes I that doesn't it. disclose client information it it indicates that there were instructions and they were followed so whatever. But it doesn't the close the substance of it doesn't disclose the substance of that communication. Well, that's the problem. I mean, confidential information is a it's broader than the than the privilege. Right, but what is I always say that does, then does that fall within the one point B two exception? Director Humiston, your red lights on. Do you want to just sum up briefly, or are you? Um, yes, if I may. Again, we have not had issues of discipline in this. We. Um, in the last five years, four attorneys have been publicly disciplined for violating Rule 1.6, 11 privately, but only two of those involved online public comments. Thank you very much. All right, that concludes the hearing on the proposed amendments to the Minnesota Rules of Professional Conduct. I want to thank all of our speakers today and those who submitted comments. The court is grateful to the lawyers board and the director's office for their good work on these issues and your good work generally. And finally, I just want to thank the Bar Association um, for its continued partnership with the bench in Minnesota um, as we all work together to ensure that Minnesota has the best court system possible and the justice system possible. So thank you. This matter is submitted.